Well, you know, one of the best, one of the best things about having little kids is it's that you get to see unfiltered depravity just on full display all the time. By the time they get about four or five years old, they've learned how to filter their depravity a little bit. But when they're younger than that, a two-year-old, it is coming full bore, unfiltered depravity. I want this, put that down, but I want it. It just, okay, you don't know how to be subtle about it. But adults, we do know how to be subtle about it. We can masterfully detail the functional necessity of worthless things that we say we need. We do this all the time. Let me just use an example of myself uh, with our sprinkler system. Guy comes and says, you got to spend $2,500 for a new sprinkler system. And I'm like, well, it's okay. We need it. But then I begin to do this something. This is called cross-examining yourself. So you can watch Law and Order to figure out how to do this or just have a, a, a lawyer for a father. So asking myself, do you need it? Why? Well, it came with the house and we need it. Do you need it? Yeah. I, mean, I don't want to be dragging hoses all over the yard like a, like a what? Like a blue-blooded member of the largest and most wealthy middle class the world has ever known? That's, that's what you don't want to be like? Well, you know, well, like, well, it's a responsibility to upkeep. Well, you know, like the, the Bible says, tend the garden and cultivate it. Really? What, what life-giving food crops are you getting from that St. Augustine turf? out in the front yard. No, that's just the dirt carpet that you're paying to water and to do with. Well, I guess I'm not getting anything. So you don't need a new system. You merely want a new one and you want the convenience of a lawn that self-waters and takes care of itself. That's what you want. And then I send myself upstairs with no dessert to think about what I've done. (laughs) It's good. You should do it. I I recommended all of you as a spiritual discipline to cultivate But what we're talking about this morning, the 10th commandment, is that very essence is desire. The desire. That's what the 10th commandment is going to bore into, is what are your desires? The 10th commandment reads like this in Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So here... At the end of the Ten Commandments, we get to one, the last one, that is entirely internal. This commandment is entirely internal, which is why it's critical that it's written down for us. The other nine all have an external manifestation. You know, we all know that there is a root, there's a tap root, right, of of desire and reason why you would do or commit any other nine Ten Commandments. But they have an external manifestation that can be governed. But this one is completely internalized. And it's critical that it's written down for us so that we know what we're doing. We're aware of our sin. Paul says in Romans 7, the Apostle Paul, in Romans 7, verse 7 through 8, he says, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me All kinds of covetousness. Because this commandment is completely internal, it's easy for us to identify it or label it not to be sin. It's easy to do that because you can't see me doing it. But God wrote it down for a reason. And now that we have it in plain language, 
We're aware that coveting has crested its banks and flooded our hearts. Like Paul says in Romans 7, that it produced in me coveting of every kind. I realized how covetous I was. And this reality makes a fitting conclusion to the Decalogue, to the Ten Commandments, because all sinful acts begin with sinful desires, right? James 1 says in verses 14 through 15, but each person is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lusts. And when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Now, I memorized that in the New American Standard, but the ESV says the words that we're getting at. It says that when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, the desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, which leads to death. Desire. This moral law is about the sanctity of motives. That's what the Tenth Commandment's about. The sanctity of motives. What are your desires and why are they your desires? Proverbs 16, 2 says, All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. We think that we're doing right, but God's looking at our heart. What do you really want? What are you actually after? That's what this Ten Commandment is going is to drill down into because this commandment can never be transferred into governmental codes. How could you get arrested for coveting? Who would be the witness in that case? In the trial, who's going to get up there and say, yeah, I definitely saw them do that inside their own heads. First Corinthians 2 says, who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So we can't know. This can't be transferred. You can transfer all the other ones into a law. You can make adultery a law. Murder is a law. Lying under oath, things like that is a law. But you can't make this one into one. You can't police it. It's completely internalized. So what we need to do is define it. We need to define it. So coveting defined is the illegitimate desire of that which is not yours. Coveting is an illegitimate desire of that which is not yours, meaning that if we were to acquire that object, it would require violating one of the other nine commandments. So then if I work hard and I earn the money and then I pay for it, I can't violate the 10th commandment. Well, no, you can. Anything that has become supreme in your life has taken the rightful place of God and replaced it with something else. And so therefore you violated the second commandment via the 10th commandment. Well, what if what I desire is something like transcendent, something like uh, tranquility or peace or just love? I, I want that. Well, no, you can still violate the first commandment by desiring something illegitimately that's immaterial. So we can violate this commandment in lots of ways. So then if we're going to accept that definition, that it's the illegitimate desire of things that, which are not yours, you could say then that the, not, the 10th commandment is the interpreting clause for all other nine. Let's look at it like this. Let's look at the first commandment. I desire life without an absolute authority. Have no other gods before me. You broke the first commandment. I desire to worship however I want to. Well, you've broken the second commandment. You shall have no idols. I desire to use the name of Yahweh however I want to. You've broken the third commandment. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. I desire to have my week and my days and my time be mine, and I decide what to do with them when you violated the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day. 
keep it holy. Well, I don't want any human authority over me whatsoever. You violated the fifth commandment. You shall honor your father and your mother. Well, I desire uh, unchecked anger. I want to be as angry as I want to be. Or I want to be able to kill a baby that inconveniences me when it's in the womb. Well, you violated the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. Well, I, I desire to sleep with whoever I want to sleep with, whether they be physical or digital. Well, you, you violated the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. I desire to take what you have. The eighth commandment, you shall not steal. I desire to get what I want to get however I need to get there. Well, you violated the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false testimony. So you see how the tenth interprets one through nine? That this is kind of this underlying root to all of these things, that this, this heart behind it, an unregulated, unchecked coveting can lead you to places that you don't want to go. It led Judas, a follower of Jesus Christ, to end up conspiring in his murder. Matthew talks about his coveting heart in Matthew 26, 14 through 16. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. And in John 12, John gets into his heart and says, he loved money. He loved it so much, he would even take from the communal money bag that the 12 disciples had. He would take money from that all the time. And so the phrase that he violates from the commandment as written is, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, an illegitimate desire for material goods. It took David, unregulated covenant took David from being a king and still being a man after God's own heart to becoming a murderous adulterer. Well, we know the story, right? He's up on the roof. He's watching this woman take a bath named Bathsheba. And then in 2 Samuel verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 4, so David sent messengers and took her. He wanted her and he took her. And he violates the phrase in the 10th commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, an illegitimate desire for sex. This, this commandment led Eve to violate her position as the proto-family. It leads her to idolatry, unchecked coveting. In Genesis 3, verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave also some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. She made herself her own God. Adam and Eve wanted that position, that power and that authority. And the 10th commandment says, you shall not covet his male servant, his female servant, his ox or his donkey, the means to power or authority. That's what those are. So unregulated coveting leads you to places you don't want to go. So how do we apply this? Therefore, we must conclude that any desire at all is sin and the Christian life must be one void of desire, Right? If my car careens off a bridge and into the water, I shouldn't try to swim out because I shouldn't covet life that much. Or if I, a job opening comes up or a promotion comes up, I shouldn't apply for it because I shouldn't want money or power or position or whatever that much, so I shouldn't, I shouldn't apply for it. Is that right? Is all aspiration sin and selfishness? Is there any version of holy aspiration that I can... Uh, that I can have without violating the 10th commandment and maybe a few others? Is that possible? Well, look at 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. 
So Paul says that men in the church who meet the requirements, you should desire to be an elder or a pastor if that's what you're called to do. There is a way to desire that in a righteous way. Paul says that you should desire that position which is authoritative. So there's some holy desire. What about Proverbs 18, 22? He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. So if you're finding something, you're looking for a spouse, you're looking for marriage, sounds like the Holy Spirit through Solomon is saying you should desire that. You should aspire to go get it, engage in active pursuit. What about 1 Peter 2, verse 2? When Peter writes, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. The pure spiritual milk of the word, he says, long for it, like newborn babies. How do newborn babies long for milk? Is it a casual longing? Do they seem indifferent as to whether or not they get the milk? Ah, if you get to me, mom, don't worry about it. I can hold off for another hour or two. No, as soon as they're hungry, it's full outrage. Give me it now. And that's what he says, an aggressive, demanding heart for the word of God. That sounds like desire to me. It sounds like coveting to me. So how do we make sense of this? Remember our definition of coveting, right? It's an illegitimate desire for that which is not yours. And then acquiring of that thing would cause you to violate one of the other commandments. Can someone desire church leadership illegitimately? Absolutely they can. But is it also possible for a faithful man to continue living a godly life according to the requirements laid out in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 and 1 Peter 5 and the church to recognize that and then pull them into that position of leadership? Could that happen too? Yeah, that's how it should happen. Can someone rightly or wrongly rather, can someone wrongly long for marriage? Illegitimate desire for marriage? Yeah, absolutely. My friend Jeremy, he fully admitted to me that that's what he, where he was. He wanted to be married more than he wanted anything of God, more than he wanted anything of, of service or obedience to God. And he had to get to a place where he was like, God, if you never bring a wife at all, I'll be okay because all I want is you. And later on, God brought him a wife and now he has four healthy kids. So you can desire it rightly as well. Can you want to rise in your company illegitimately? Of course, We see conniving and backstabbing in the corporate world all the time. But can you also just keep your head down and work diligently, work hard, put your nose to the grindstone and do good work and then have the authorities recognize that and promote you in it and you gratefully receive that? Absolutely you can. And that that, that we can do these things. So we need to find a correct application, an actual doable application of this Commandment. So how are we supposed to appropriately engage our sinfulness according to this commandment? Well, J.I. Packer says that we need to, that the answer lies in contentment with one's lot, with what you've been given in life, your lot in life, contentment. Let me give you some verses on contentment. Ecclesiastes 3, 12 and 13. It says, I perceived that there was nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. And then Job says in Job 1, 21, he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord has given, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Whether I have it, whether I don't, God is in control. He is to be blessed. That's contentment. And then 1 Timothy 6, 
7 and 8, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and clothing with these, we shall be content. So there's a biblical precedent for contentment. So, you see, if you relentlessly strive to keep the 10th commandment, it's going to be exceedingly difficult for you to break 1 through 9. If you're striving to be content with what you have, then it's going to be impossible, almost impossible. Because if you're content, then it's impossible to be covetous. You don't want anything. You don't want any of that stuff illegitimately. See, part of our difficulty in our day and age with this commandment is that we have been born into the most prosperous nation and era that the world has ever known. Have you ever thought about that? That we have to tell kids where food comes from. We're so far removed from subsisting, you got to tell them, where does this bacon come from? It came from a pig. And amen that the Old Testament is over. And we can eat this bacon. But we have to tell them that. Where does this corn come from? We have to tell them, because we don't see cornfields around. If you live in the city, and you don't slaughter your own pigs at home. We're so far removed from that. We, we live in, a, in, a, in an economy and in a socioeconomic world that we are molded into consumers before we are taught to be producers. That we want to get anything before we can actually do anything. I mean, just drive around. What are all the venues, the shops, the everything that's open and available for business? It's what you can buy, not what you can do. It's selling you something, not making it available for you to do something. That's the, that's the world that we live in. We are fed a steady diet of discontentment from every screen and billboard that comes across our face. And isn't that the whole gist of marketing? That I'm just going to play off your discontentment? No, you need an iPhone 5000 or whatever. The next one's coming out. No, you need that. Oh, you mean the current one that I could probably put something on the moon with isn't good enough anymore? You're right. I do need it. I need it now. They're just playing off your discontentment. That's the world that we live in, a high-speed world of that. So how do, we, how do we deal with this? The secret to contentment is being altogether consumed with the glory and the majesty of God. If God is what consumes us in his divine sovereignty, then we can fend off the desire of discontentment and to covet. Hebrews 13.5 tells us this, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Do you understand that last phrase? Have you, you've heard that last phrase, but do you get it? I will never leave you or forsake you. Never. When the hurricane comes, I will never leave you or forsake you. When your spouse goes bananas on you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. When a kid goes off the rails, I will never leave you. When you get fired, I will never leave you. I will never leave you. Do we lean on that? Sometimes there's these phrases in Christianity that seem trite or that seem commonplace and we know them so well that we ignore them. But are we leaning hard on phrases like that that exist in our Bibles that God says to his children, I will never leave you. And if that is true, what need do I have of anything else? If I believe that, where we are now in a, in a Bible and in a cultural Christianity-saturated environment 
is that we need to get into the simple truths and bear down with them and believe them. Because they're true. And this is one of them. You can walk in contentment when you become satisfied with God's sovereign provision and his sovereign timing in your own life. Matthew 6, at the end of the chapter, Jesus says that unbelievers worry about material things, what they're going to eat, what they're going to put on, what they're going to do. That's what unbelievers do. But you are different. You are kingdom citizens. You're different. We don't worry about those things. What if you woke up every single day utterly discontent with your closeness to God and your level of personal holiness but at the same time, utterly ambivalent towards material things that may or may not come your way? What if you woke up every day like that, completely discontent with your Christ-likeness, your level of holiness, your understanding of Scripture, and your personal witness? What if you were just completely dissatisfied with that? What if you forgot to eat breakfast every day because God's Word tasted so much better? Or what if in those lulls, those doldrums of the day, the work day as you go along, what if instead of turning to Facebook to be mindlessly entertained, you pray to some sweet prayers to our Heavenly Father. He hears all things. What if that happened? What, and I know what you're thinking right now. Man, this must be sermon training 101 in seminary because I've heard this talk about a thousand times. But let me just say it like this. What if that person existed? What if they really existed? Do, do you know anyone like that? Or are, you, are your most prominent influencers spiritually unremarkable people? This is, a, this is a massive reason why I read Christian biographies. Because I need to be in conversations with and confrontations with men who are more holy, more humble, more giving, more devoted, more passionate, more Christ-like than me. I have to be in conversations with those kinds of people. That's why I read those books. That's why I bring up all these old dead guys to you. Because we need to know them. We need to be surrounded and drinking deeply with, alongside with, spiritually remarkable people. That's why I bring up this guy. I've heard, you've heard me say his name before. His name is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He's a pastor in England in the late 1800s. He died early. But I have a picture of him hanging on my wall, and I'm collecting everything that he's ever written. And here's why. Every single week, he would preach four to 10 times. Every single week, he would read six real books, not face books, real books. And then he would also edit and publish a magazine weekly. And he would edit his own sermon that was transcribed from the Sunday before so it could be printed in the paper the next day. He pastored a church of 6,000 people. He oversaw 60 plus charitable Ministries. He founded and ran an orphanage. He wrote over 150 books. He did all of this while visiting the sick and dying frequently and doing their funerals. And he had an invalid wife who he constantly loved. And you can read her writings about it. And he had two twin sons who followed him into ministry. So he's a good father and a good husband. I need to be around people like that. And I want to be somebody like that. That's why I read George Whitfield. He preached 18,000 sermons in his career in ministry. He died at 55. 
18,000 sermons. So we're in a 38-year ministry, that's one and a half sermons a day with no microphone. I need to be around those kind of people. We need to be around those kind of people because those people have existed. We need to become those people for our kids, for our neighbors, for people in our churches, not for our own glory, but for the glory of Christ. That say that you are all that I desire and everything else can go by the wayside. Everything else Absolutely. So, so should our response then, though, we can hear that and go, I can't do that. I can't make the mustard. I can't do that. So I should just be fatalistic. Because God's sovereign and just, just you know, we're going to get whatever we're going to get in life. And that's just what it is. I am what I am. I'm stuck where I'm at. Is that the response? To just become fatalistic? No, that we can't respond like that. That's the pattern of Greek Stoics, of Eastern mystics, and Western atheists who actually live consistently with their lifestyle. Nothing matters. So just be fatalistic. But we can't do that. What we live like, this is not fatalism. This is a confident assurance that the one in whom we have placed our faith, our all, Jesus Christ, conducts everything. He moves every molecule. He holds the universe together. That one has directed every instant, every moment, every occasion in my life. And we lean into that, that we have a Savior who watches over us like a loving shepherd. He, he calls himself the good shepherd. And shepherding in that context is not something you quit at five o'clock. It's around the clock all the time. And you know the sheep and you care for them. That's the one. That one who's pictured as this caring shepherd is the one directing all around us. There are no maverick molecules. No molecule can decide what to do on its own. Our Savior is the one who directs it, and not a hair of our heads can fall out without his permission. Acts 17, 28 says, in him we live and move and have our being. Hebrews 1, verse 3 says, in him he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Let me read you a quote by a commentator named Philip Reichen. Before I do, whenever I read a book, I write all over it. I don't count it as reading unless I've written all over that thing. Underlining, starring, highlighting, writing notes to myself in the comps. Because I want to build a, a research bank, not just a library collection. So I go through and I write notes. And then going through this week and studying, I came across uh, a text that I'd written or read before. And the note that I wrote myself in the column, I try to draw myself in so I can remember what it was. This is all I wrote next to this quote. I just wrote uh, in parentheses, a donkey kick to the teeth. Uh, so let's get mule kicked to the teeth by this quote. This is going to be good. The, the truth is that if God wanted us to have more right now, we would have it. If we needed different gifts to enable us to glorify him, he would provide them. If we were ready for the job or ministry we want, he would put us into it. If we were supposed to be in a different situation in life, we would be in it. Instead of saying, if only this and if only that, God calls us to glorify him to the fullest right now, whatever situation we are in. How are your teeth? Man, I read that one again. I was like, goodness. If I was supposed to have that, if I was supposed to be there, if I was supposed to know this or do that or be there, it would be there. I had a guy who discipled me, and he played football for Baylor, and he had a guy that started in front of him, and always he never got to play, and he finally had to come to the conclusion, and he used this to instruct men like me, that he was like, if God wanted me in the game, 
I would be there. He can make that head coach do anything he wants, and if I was supposed to be in the game, then I would be in there. That's the essence of, of this quote. That's the essence of Philippians 4.13. The Tim Tebow verse, the one that's yanked out of context all the time, right? It's not just for Christian kids playing football or taking tests. It says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And what is the context? It is whether I have little or whether I have much, I can do all things. The context is contentment because God's in control of all of that. And he strengthens me in all of that. So therein lies my faith. And so what all of this is going to condense down into for us this morning is this question. What do you desire more than Jesus? That's what it boils down to. What do you desire more than Jesus? What person, place, thing, or idea, if it were removed from you, would paralyze you? What thing out there that exists that if you didn't have it anymore, your life would come to a grinding halt, your life would be shattered? If your answer is anything but Jesus, you have found your covetousness. You have found possibly what is keeping you from true belief, what's keeping you from salvation. And praise be to God that he gave us an instance in three of the gospels of this exact idea, this exact truth. Luke 18 And through Matthew and Mark's accounts, we understand that this young man who comes to him is in fact young and he is ruler, he has authority and he's rich. He has lots of things. And he's gonna come to Jesus and listen, follow along with me in Luke 18, verse 18. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. This this story is not about you having to give up material goods in order to be saved. The story is not about having to follow the, the second table of the law. That, you notice he quoted those, those last of the Ten Commandments. It's not about that. It's that this guy came to Jesus and said, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? I want to be saved. And if somebody came to you and asked that, would you go keep the Ten Commandments? I don't know, we're smart enough not to do that. That's what Jesus does, though. He says, he says keep the Ten Commandments. And the guy goes, I have. Turns out, he goes, all right, well, why don't we just start with number one? Have no other gods before me. And he just goes right at that guy's heart. This isn't about, like, you need to be able to give up all your stuff, and if you don't give up all your stuff and you're not saved, he just goes right at his heart. What do you love more than me? And he goes right at the heart of that money. He says, sell all your stuff. Give away all your money. And they come follow me. And he leaves. The other accounts in Mark and in Matthew say that his face was downcast and he walked away sad. He walked away unsaved because he loved something more than Jesus. 
He wanted eternal life up to a certain level of commitment. I want eternal life, but not if it's going to cost me that much. I, 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 still, I still covet my stuff and my money. And that was his. It may not be for you. And then the, the account goes on because then Jesus says, it's going to be very difficult for a rich person to inherit eternal life. And the disciples panic because they're like, we're poor nobodies. And if they can't be saved, how can we be saved? In verse 26, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? And then verse 28, and Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. They're like, wait a minute, who gets to be saved then? We did give up everything. We did leave our jobs behind and our families behind, our reputations behind, our money behind. We're following you around and not working. We left all of that behind. Who can be saved? And then Jesus answers this in verse 29 and 30. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So friends, what we need to wrestle with today is what do you love more than Jesus? Because then you pinpoint your covetousness and that may be something that we as Christians step into and out of frequently. That, that, that's the sin that plagues us. That's what Paul says plagued him in Romans 7. But friend in here who is not a believer, do you love anything more than Jesus? Because when Jesus is the zenith of all your desires, you will not be embarrassed in the last day. You will not be put to shame in the last day. When Jesus is the pinnacle of all that you want, you may be embarrassed at work when they fire you because you won't behave immorally to gain money for the company. If Jesus is the pinnacle of your desires, you may be embarrassed because you don't get to hold a specific office because the dogma is too loud within you. That may happen to you. You may be embarrassed, but you will not be embarrassed or put to shame on the last day if your hope is in Christ alone. Romans 5 verse 5 says, our hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given, he has given to us. So then we can sing together with all honesty, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Because that's, in the end, all you will have, or you will have nothing. All I have is Christ. And we sing that with full gusto, with a ambivalence and abandon of material things and people and places and ideas, and all we have is Christ. And therein lies the end of the Ten Commandments. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for telling us these things and that we have written down for us accounts such as the one of the rich young ruler that we can see from that um, historical narrative what what we need to deal with that we need to pinpoint our covetousness because that will keep us from reconciliation with you that if we want anything more than you 
we cannot be reconciled to you. And you have told us that. And then you have told us, Lord, that we don't have to keep all Ten Commandments in order to be saved. That you've listed those Ten Commandments out to prove to us we cannot save ourselves. But that if we turn to Christ and we look to the cross and we repent and believe, then we can be saved. And then now we are equipped to go forth and do the Ten Commandments, to look shockingly different to a depraved and wretched world, so desperate for life, so desperate and thirsty for living water that you say wells up and springs forth from those that are your children. Let us give generously with that water. Lord, we thank you for the truth of the Bible. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.